Back again to put the super micro story to bed once and for all. Super spyware, Pegasus, has been in the news a lot recently. We talked to one of the world's foremost experts on the malware in our future interview. The hammer is coming down on China, Google+, and Equifax, and we'll talk all about it this week. Let's go. Welcome to Securiosity. I am Greg Otto. And I'm Jen O'Daniel. Get ready for a podcast full of China. A good portion of the stories this week touch on China and all of the hacking that they've been doing. The story that does not touch China has to deal with Pegasus, the nasty mobile malware that has been making international news. We talk with Mike Murray from Lookout, which has spent a lot of time looking at Pegasus. But from ICS malware to data breaches, it's been another week packed with news. So let's get to it. Supermicro, the company at the center of the big Bloomberg story from a few months ago, said Tuesday that an internal review found no evidence of compromised chips on its motherboards. A letter from Supermicro executives sent to customers says that a thorough investigation into the manufacturing, auditing, oversight, and testing aspects of its production process and could not corroborate the Bloomberg story. The report, which described a plausible but different attack, alleged that Chinese operatives compromised the hardware of Supermicro motherboards supplied to major tech companies like Apple and Amazon Web Services. Those companies, as well as U.S. public officials, have strongly pushed back against the story. Greg, is this the last we're going to hear about it? Uh, I hope so, because this really does seem to be the last nail in the coffin for this story. Um, it's it's hard to see where this goes from here other than this entire story being DOA. I mean, third-party investigation says, no, we've seen nothing. Rob Joyce, again, on Tuesday at a Wall Street Journal event, said that nobody has approached him and that the government has found nothing. So this seems to be a pretty botched story. I I don't know any other way to say it. Supply chain is a problem. It This is not the problem. But I imagine we see a lawsuit next, though, right, from Supermicro to Bloomberg? Yeah, I would imagine that part of this was due diligence on Supermicro's part, and I would not be surprised if Supermicro rolls out a lawsuit, if AWS rolls out a lawsuit, and if Apple rolls out a lawsuit. This is uh, – uh, uh, there hasn't been a lot of chatter about this this week, obviously, for other reasons, but I, I really think that this is a huge deal. Like, <laughs> this is – a a really big shot at Bloomberg's reporting, and I mm-hmm. don't see how anything else tied to the story goes on except a retraction. I, I really don't. I mean, we've talked about it for months, and it's not worth getting into because really nothing has changed. I think there needs to be some sort of retraction here or you're going to see lawsuits. So interesting. So the U.S. government is still concerned about Chinese cyber operations, according to senior NSA official Rob Joyce, who spoke at that Wall Street Journal event that we spoke about earlier. Officials in the U.S., U.K., Australia, and elsewhere have warned that Chinese tech giant Huawei's ties with Beijing, combined with widespread adoption of the company's technology, could result in Chinese espionage opportunities. Western officials have not revealed any evidence proving such allegations, and Huawei has consistently denied wrongdoing, but Joyce says the evidence exists. Those are based on real grounded examples, he said earlier this week. They're not things we're going to try to carry out into public because we need to be able to track those in the national security space. Jen, do you believe him? 
hundred percent. There's no reason for Rob Joyce to be telling us misinformation. Right. I think this is coupled on top of the fact that the U.S. has said that China's behind the Marriott breach. There just recently, I believe on Tuesday, there was an interview with the Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, and he said that publicly that China was behind the Marriott breach. There's going to be some charges by the time you listening to this on the other end here, this podcast, there will probably have been charges rolled out against a uh, Chinese hacker group. Um, This is really where the emphasis is moving when it comes to the U.S. government and nation states. It seems like we've moved now from Russia to China. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that has to do with the concentrations of the Trump administration. But, I mean, that doesn't mean it's not valid. Huawei's technology has been not... I don't think it's necessarily been banned. It's been banned outright. Like you're not going to see any – it's been banned without really a ban. Like you're not going to see any federal agencies or any sort of government money going into Huawei products. I thought he tweeted or made some statements somewhere along the way. Right. But that's just not going to happen. It's it's basically the same thing with Kaspersky, although Kaspersky, it was codified a little bit more. There were actual decrees, the the binding operational directive from DHS where – basically cut Kaspersky's business in the U.S. off at at the kneecaps. Um, With Huawei, uh, the the thing about Huawei which makes it so dicey is that the race to 5G. Huawei offers cheap infrastructure that allows China and other companies around the world to get up to 5G. And there's a race to 5G just as there's been a technology race between China and the U.S., for almost a decade now. So it, it's this it's a dicey situation, but Huawei is only one sort of spoke of the wheel when it comes to the way that China is acting in the cybersecurity space, as we've seen this week. The, the, the U.S. government is being extremely loud in the way that they are going after China in the past few weeks. So we're going to be talking China a lot, I feel like, to close out the year. <laughs> so let's move on to Equifax. So the fallout from one of the biggest data breaches in history continues with the release of a congressional report faulting Equifax for a hack that was, to quote, entirely preventable. The House Oversight and Government Reform Committee said in its report about the breach that a lack of accountability and poor IT management structure are big reasons why the credit monitoring giant failed to secure its network before the 2017 breach that tied to 148 million people. The company's aggressive growth strategy left little room for understanding how its security posture changed after acquisitions, the committee found. Equifax hit back, asserting that 96-page report contained multiple inaccuracies and criticizing the committee for giving it minimal time to review the report. Greg, is Congress accurate here? So I think that they've done a good job with what they rolled out. Uh, Accurate? Yeah, I would say that they are because... The information's been out there. Like Congress has done their due diligence and and checked with other like law enforcement and with DHS on the way this all went down. So for Equifax to come out and say, "Oh, we didn't have time to review it." Well, that's your best defense against this this right now. Like, yeah, this is this is pretty bad um, because the hack was pretty bad. So everything tied to this is going to be awful. The report is really detailed, goes into a lot of like 
internal strife that was going on at Equifax that kind of led to this and goes to show that inside enterprises, you need to have a cohesive, not just a cohesive security structure, but a cohesive communication structure when it comes to this stuff. Executives need to have the buy-in, not just the CISO, and everybody needs to be on the same page with what you need to do. And that's from a basic standpoint as well, because a lot of this was dealing with not patching Apache struts. That, That can't happen. So Congress was very accurate, and Equifax is going to continue to, you know, take their lumps over this because it was a really, really awful breach. As they should. To another awful breach. (laughs) Google says it will shut down the consumer version of Google Plus months sooner than planned after discovering a security flaw that impacted the privacy of 52.5 million users. So Google said in October that it would shut down the social media platform in August of next year when they disclosed another bug that exposed non-public profile information. But Monday's announcement brings the farewell date for Google Plus's consumer platform up to March of next year. This bug that they found existed for six days, and there's no indication it was exploited before the company discovered it during standard testing procedures. Jen, should Google even wait to shut this down at this point? So so a couple things here. Wait, there's still 52.5 million users? Correct. And they should have shut it down immediately. If their plan is to shut it down anyway... Why not do it now? Yeah, I mean, I think that going back to... Well, 30-day notice. Right. Those 52.5 million users, obviously, I would bet that under under 1 million of them are active. And I would be willing to even go further than that, but let's just keep it that way. I mean, it reminds reminds me the same thing of what happened in MySpace. I think MySpace had a data breach that was found 12, 18 months ago, and everybody went, oh, God, I haven't... When's the last time I ever signed into my MySpace Mm -hmm. page? Um, so that number seems accurate to me, but yeah, I, I don't understand why they don't just flip the switch now. Like what's, what are we waiting for? This is the second bug, eight figure users affected, just shut it down now. Like I'm really like trying to find the words to figure out why this can't just be turned off just for consumers. Just flip the switch, see internet. It's easy. Just it do must it. bring in some some sort of revenue, um, but also I think this also tells us that. Well, that I don't even think that it's a revenue for thing. For breaches is not strong enough. Right. Well, I don't even think it's a revenue thing as much as it is a data thing. Like it's it's so uh, I, I guess it is a a revenue thing, but I look at it more direct in that there still has to be some value to that data. So I think that that is why that they are sitting on it for ninety days. There, there are people right now in Palo Alto and Mountain View going through what they can and trying to save what data that they can. Because, come on, you know this better than anybody. If there's still value from it, you're still going to try to derive any value from it yeah. that you can for for Absolutely. profit standpoints. That's, that's what happens. I just don't think that that is smart, and I think that they should just shut it off right now. Google's had enough problems this week. Just turn just it off turn and it be off. done with yeah. it. Between Stuxnet and Trisis, the Middle East has not been short on systemic cyber operations in recent years, and new research from Symantec shows that the region continues to be fertile ground for hackers. A group known as Muddy Water has breached 131 victims in 30 organizations since September, including embassies and companies and telecommunications, as well as oil and gas. One intriguing detail of the research was the discovery of Muddy Water and Russia's Fancy Bear on the same network of an embassy in Brazil representing an oil company 
that's not that unusual. Semantics, Jonathan Rolsad told CyberScoop because embassies are ripe targets for spies. Greg, it sounds like there are a lot of teams here from other countries working with Russia. Yeah, and that's just the way that this is moving, the same way that we have the Five Eyes and the Five Eyes talk to one another. Uh, Russia is going to have their own allies in the Middle East where they can, and they're going to work together in order to get the information that they want. I mean, we there was that clip that got passed around during the last big uh, international meeting. I think it was the G20. I, I may be wrong there. Um, where Vladimir Putin was dapping up MBS from Saudi Arabia. Like, <laughs> there's there's no bigger sign that Russia has its allies too, and they're going to work to get the information that they want. I mean, that's that's I mean, just geo- yeah, yeah, that's just geopolitics and how cyber functions on the geopolitical platform now. But yeah, we were just talking about how you know our the U.S. focus seems to have moved from Russia to China, and Russia's. I think. It just seems like Russia's been really concentrating on targeting those ICS systems that we talk about so much. So interesting research from Symantec there. Definitely check out the full story if you have some time. So in a speech last week, Senator Mark Warner proposed a whole-of-society cyber doctrine rather than one that treats the cybersecurity challenges in government and private sector separately. Russian interference, which we've talked about numerous times, laid bare the vulnerabilities in American society and institutions to hacking and information operations. Two years later, policymakers are still searching for a comprehensive strategy for dealing with those issues. Warner called on the U.S. to redouble its pursuit of global cyber norms, social media companies to do more to combat disinformation, and the Pentagon to spend more on cyber defense. He also wants the U.S. government to require baseline security standards in the devices it buys, among other proposals. Jen, how did these comments hit you? Are these worthwhile or are they worthless? I really like Senator Warner, and I actually think he is pretty smart when it comes to cybersecurity. Um, His last um, cybersecurity person, Rosie, was amazing. Um, But this said, this just seems sort of like worthless comments. Um, This isn't really anything game-changing or new, in my opinion. Yeah, I'm really with you there. Senator Warner is one of the smarter senators on this topic, and... I I wouldn't push the needle all the way to worthless, but here's here's the thing. This is there's there's nothing new here. There is nothing new here. Like I, I read the speech. The speech hits all the right points, and I agree with him on those points. But coming from him, it sounds like old hat. Like yes, of course, Mark Warner is going to say these things. Mark Warner has said these things now for two years, if not longer. What would be really interesting to me is if this speech came out of the mouth of a presidential candidate, like on a national stage. Right. Like that is where I think the impact really is. And I'm not saying that Mark Warner is running for president. That's not what I'm getting at here. I'm just saying whoever it is that runs for president, I think could make a real impact and make it part of their campaign strategy to be like, hey, this is what we need to be doing. And this is important enough to make a big policy platform as I run for president. Because in in years past, uh, in 2016 and 2012, it was like, oh, yeah, cybersecurity, we're going to check all of the boxes there. It's, well, well, no, let's, let's take it a step further because we're just getting wrecked on this stuff so much that it needs to be brought 
to the American public's attention, not just from the usual suspects, from somebody that is out there that is new that it wouldn't necessarily come from. I, I, I think that it would be really interesting to see these type of comments come from somebody that is eventually going to be running for president, and it wouldn't just be all that. Well, I mean, I guess it could be be coming from someone who might be running for president, but um, fingers crossed that cybersecurity is a platform. Hopefully. So the Tor project for years has been developing technology to help web users browse the internet without prying eyes at repressive governments or Silicon Valley giants. Surveillance and the collection of personal data continues to be a fundamental problem for internet users, as evidenced by the number of data breaches in recent months involving information about hundreds of millions of users. So in steps, Isabella Bajagros, the new executive director for the project. In an interview with CyberScoop, she detailed her plan to reduce the organization's reliance on government funding. A key aspect of that is international growth, with the idea that more users around the world will lead to more donations. Gray, do you think this is the right path forward for Tor? I think it's an interesting path forward. Uh, I don't have my crystal ball to tell you whether it's right or wrong, but I, I think it's interesting from the standpoint that, so in the interview, uh, Isabella Bagueros came from Twitter. That was, mm-hmm. she used to do a lot of UX stuff at Twitter, which is really, really interesting to me moving forward because Tor has a user experience hurdle in my mind, only because people want to be able to browse the web vastly, yeah. and Tor doesn't do that. I know why Tor does that. The Tor project knows why. The, the security-conscious people know why. But obviously, if you want somebody to use this browser, if you want wide audience for your browser, you're going to have to make it perform as much as possible. So I think that that is also a hurdle beyond donations. Obviously, the more users you get, the more donations you're going to get if you're going to be crowdfunding. And that money is then in turn going to help that user experience grow. So it's cyclical. I get it that one part of it kind of feeds the other part of it and the cycle will keep going. But I I think it's good that they are trying to move away from relying on regime, not regimes, but just governments in general for funding because governments change a lot more than an audience base would or a company would or anything like that. And look, as we've we've had a wide change from the last administration to this one. I'm not saying that that is necessarily, you know, uh, a death sentence for tour, but you can't really rely what you're going to get from administration to administration. And even inside administrations, budgets change. Mm -hmm. Like, it's just such a wild card to rely on government funding that I think it's really, really smart to try to find new avenues. So it's really, really interesting to see how this is going to grow, and we'll stay on top of it. Yeah, see if it works. So now to our interview with Mike Murray. Mike is the chief security officer for Lookout, and we get into Pegasus. Pegasus has been in the news recently, especially around its possible use with connection to the Jamal Khashoggi killing. Really deep conversation into what the future is and how Mike is tracking Pegasus moving forward. Check it out. All right, joining us now is Mike Murray, the Chief Security Officer of Lookout. Mike, it's been a while since we've talked, but uh, appreciate it. Uh, appreciate you hopping aboard. Absolutely, and thanks for having me again. I'm uh, really excited to do this. 
So Pegasus has been back in the news. Definitely want to talk to you about it, considering that Lookout has done some seminal work around Pegasus. So there have been a lot of stories about it being abused. I'm wondering if Lookout has been following Pegasus from a technical perspective and as to any changes Pegasus has been making. Sure. So so we, we've obviously been following NSO for a couple of years now and uh, and been keeping kind of abreast of the things that they're up to. Um, probably the two most interesting changes that, that I, I can talk about um, are one of the things we saw right after the very first discovery. When we first discovered Pegasus, um, NSO was, was not necessarily doing that much to protect their infrastructure. And over the past couple of years, their infrastructure security has evolved a bunch. And, and I mean, using things like single-use links, which they were using at the time, but they've, they've expanded on that, and, and using, using infrastructure in a way that makes it harder for, for, um, for the good guys to track them. And Citizen Lab's written some papers on that and, and been public about some of that stuff. Um, but specifically the things that they've done around infrastructure is kind of interesting. Um, one of the other ones we, we think that, uh, that is becoming more prevalent, it, and this isn't just an NSO thing. This is actually a trend across um, mobile, uh, sort of mobile APT. The, the mobile APTs are moving more and more towards, uh, I mean, similarly to the way we see fileless attacks on um, – on traditional infrastructure, on, on like Windows and and uh, Linux and the like, we're seeing more and more of, of that sort of ephemerality around exploitation. I, it, it largely that's just a function of um, of economics, um, an exploit chain that allows you to have um, persistence and write access to to root partitions and things like that is a lot more rare than an exploit chain that just gives you residency on the device but doesn't necessarily let you write to all those sensitive places or bypass kernel patch protection and some of those things. So so we've seen more and more the attackers moving to a more ephemeral style of exploits where if you reboot your phone, they lose access. So one of the things that's been written about lately is that Pegasus seems to have moved to a no-click method of download. How do you stop something like that? Well, actually, so so two pieces to that, and I'll come back to how do you stop something like that. Um, but but I think I, I think it's a it's a misconception that they've moved to the no click. If you go back in the history of NSO and the things that have leaked over time, uh, no click was always an option. Even going all the way back to um, to earlier days where they were using WAF push messages to to deliver the exploits through um, through basically carrier channels. Okay. And so, and there's always been a deployment model that involved captive portals. So, for example, on Wi-Fi, um, where you could infect a target without, like, basically when the Wi-Fi captive portal uh, authentication um, popped up. So that's that's been something they've offered from the very beginning or close to it. So I, I think it's just more, you know, Pegasus. Three years ago, nobody even really knew what it was, and I think now that people are more aware of it, we're seeing it. Um, I, I think the the solution to no click is pretty much the same as the solution to a click, right? Um, you know, you're ne- if if I've learned anything in twenty some odd years of security, it's I'm never going to get my users to stop clicking on things. So whether I'm stopping no click or my user clicking, 
I mean, ultimately, the next step is to is to detect the infection as quickly as possible, to detect the exploit in motion if possible, but if not, to detect it as it executes, and and you know, fire the warning flare at that point. Or, um, you know, uh, if we were on P- on PC, this would be where you'd quarantine once the infection happened. That's not an option on mobile, so it's really just detect as quickly as possible. So. Mike, I want you to put on your policy hat for a little bit here. Uh, NSO Group has been particularly adamant that they're following export and weapons control laws, particularly in Israel, since they are based there. Uh, do you think anything needs to change with the regard on how that's being handled so tools like Pegasus don't fall into the hands of repressive regimes? Man, well, so it's funny. I, in some ways, we're we're above my pay grade because uh, my policy hat's relatively small. But <laughs> at, at the same time, I, I mean, I, I have to admit, I don't understand enough about the the rules that govern that kind of transaction internationally. I mean, you know, to me, Pegasus is no different than any other armament, and and so I don't understand what the export control laws and how how people sell guns across borders and missiles across borders any more than I necessarily understand the rules on how Israel lets Pegasus, lets NSO sell Pegasus across borders. Um, I, I certainly, uh, you know, I certainly could, could imagine a world where, where these things were a lot more tightly controlled and a lot more locked down and a lot fewer arms dealers had, had big markets, but I can't say that I understand that economy and its inherent complexities well enough to really give a cogent, intelligent comment on it. Um, I, I'd just be another guy shooting the breeze at that point. Um, you know, I, I'll say it's it's our job, both as security people, but also I, I very much take this personally. You know, being in the role that I'm at at Lookout, I see it as our job to make it hard for um, for folks like NSO to compromise good people around the world. Um, you know, I would love it if, if a lot less NSO software got on a lot less good people's phones. And, and that's really where, where I, I spend my time, whether, whether it's on the policy side or whether it's on the, on the, let's just build technological controls that help solve the problem. That's, that's really how I look at it. So Mike, kind of, uh, flipping that question a little bit, my last question a little bit, uh, Pegasus is being used, I think there was a report recently, Pegasus is being used in upwards of like 45 countries. Do you yeah. expect that number to grow? I mean, what is your reaction to that number? Because it seems relatively high. I mean, it's high, but that's the, actually, I, I, I think when we first found it, it was quite a bit lower than that. Um, and and I will say, I think that we have all, and again, I, I, say, I say this is the royal we, right? Um, you know, even conversations like this, We've all done a really good job of marketing for the NSO group over the last three years, right? All of these stories about that, that have ended up as front page news um, simply, you know, raise the awareness of this kind of technology. You know, it, and actually, it, it, you could see this effect most interestingly if you go back and read all the hacking team email dumps from about 2014. Uh, that when the when the when Hacking Team was first exposed, there was actually a bunch of internal conversations that you can go find where they sort of worried a little bit about whether or not this would impact their business negatively and then found out over time that the publicity of exposure actually got them more business than when they were keeping themselves secret. 
And and I have zero doubt that NSO is benefiting from the same sort of uh, of positive momentum that's generated by all of the press that we've given them. Um, you know, they couldn't buy the kind of advertising that that we all have given them in in all of these articles. And so I think I think it should be expected that you know that the more conversations we have and the more public we make uh, their capabilities, the more they're going to use it for marketing. Um, and, and I, I think. I think that's just to be expected. And and does it make me happy? No. But at the same time, um, you know, I, I also want to get the word out to the good people and get the word out that people need to protect themselves from this kind of stuff, too. So I, I you know, I'll, I'll turn to you for what the balance on that should be. I'm not a any more than I'm a policy expert. I'm not a media and journalism studies expert. But it seems to me that we've given them so much attention. It has to be benefiting their business. So Pegasus is just one exploit. What are some of the other offensive mobile malware that Lookout is tracking? Oh man, that's a big that's a big list. Um, <laughs> Give us some of your favorites. Uh, so favorites. Um, all my favorites we haven't written about yet. My favorites are the new ones. Um, so some of the older ones, though. If you if you go on our blog, there's a ton. Well, actually, I think I think one of my favorites of all time is the Viper Rat campaign. Um, we called it that because it's related to um, to an old PC campaign. It's a, it's the same actor, um, and the, that that campaign got known as Arid Viper. And so the Viper Rat folks um, have have largely been attacking targets in the Middle East. And it's just it's some of the most poorly written spyware you've ever seen, <laughs> but it's really incredibly effective. Um, similarly, when we did the Dark Caracal report, I think it was about 18 months ago now, where we outed the Lebanese government. Okay, at, I remember that. Yeah, it, again, not very sophisticated software. I mean, the the thing that that I find most interesting about some of these campaigns is the level of um, effectiveness and sophistication in terms of targeting you can get while investing very little on actually doing a really great job of software engineering. Like when we looked at when we look at Pegasus and, and NSO's work, that stuff's really well done. You know, like the software is incredibly effective, their protocols are very well designed so that they don't trip network sensors. You know, they they do things like monitor battery use on the phone to make sure they're not killing the battery too quickly. Like it's a really sophisticated software package. And then you have something like the Dark Caracal folks where the software is basically, uh, you know, modified off the shelf spouseware. And yet they've compromised thousands and thousands of people globally and are just, you know, grabbing terabytes worth of worth of exfil data from all these interesting targets. And it just really speaks to in the in the mobile ecosystem, you know, I think a lot of us look at APT and think of APT sort of as, you know, APT one, like an entire building of Chinese engineers, um, you know, who who are doing this really intense work. Right. And then and then in the mobile ecosystem, you see that you can be just as effective with a lot less investment and a lot less work. And so you have a lot more APT just running around blowing stuff up and, and and because so few of us actually have interesting software on our phones right to like uh, you know I'll go I'll be speaking at a security conference with a thousand security people in the room and I'll ask like all right how many of you have anything on your phone that would catch a, a malware infection and and see like 10% of the hands go up right and and that you know the 
the sort of Wild West of, of APT combined with the lack of security controls on people's phones makes it really interesting as a threat environment. And, and so it's, it's a fun place to work. And, and literally, it's like every week we find a new emerging threat. Most of it we don't talk about publicly so that we can continue to track the actors, right? right. And continue to, to sort of maintain the information advantage. But, but these threats are just radically evolving so fast. And it, it, it's, my, it's my contention that there is no nation state in the world that does not have a mobile espionage program. And no one, I have yet to be disproven on that. I, I, every time I think like, oh, well, this tiny nation wouldn't, I'm wrong. So, wow. Okay. It's, it's kind of neat. So you, you hit on something there that I think is really interesting. And I want to uh, pick your brain a little bit. You were talking about how Pegasus seems to be sophisticated, but yet some of this other stuff seems to be, like you said, off the shelf spouse yeah. surveillance wear, which is, you know, is a pretty simple program. Do we overuse that word sophisticated? Like I'm wondering how much of this really is sophisticated or how much is literally just casting a wide net and kind of hoping that something comes back that is worthwhile. Well, that's, that's exactly the difference, right? And then, you know, it's, I think in the PC world, and this is a longer talk, actually, uh, you know, I, this is actually a talk that I gave at a conference recently around the the evolution of PC controls versus the evolution of mobile controls and the evolution of the PC attacker versus the evolution of the mobile attacker. Uh, because because our control environment on PCs evolved slowly over about 20 years before we really got to APT, you know, you think about like, McAfee and Norton antivirus in the mid 90s and the first checkpoint firewall with stateful inspection, you know, firewall one and, and like, you know, the early snort and early, you know, IS real secure and things like that. Right. It, those control environments evolved over time. So by the time you wanted to be the Chinese doing nation state level attacks in Project Aurora in 2010, what had what passed for sort of the base of being good at it was relatively sophisticated. Whereas on mobile, because there's no controls, you don't have to do that. You never had to evolve as a nation state. Um, you didn't have to evolve to be this amazing like um, like team building these complex exploits and complex implants because there's nothing there to catch you. So, so it's a lot more of a wild, wild west because you don't have to do the kind of sophisticated things you've you've traditionally had to do on PCs to, to stay under the radar. Um, it, it, it's just, it's really that that the mobile landscape evolved APT first, whereas the PC landscape evolved APT last. And and it, it just, it really radically changes what everybody should be expecting when they're looking for, for like, for mobile attacks. And back to, to the point that you originally made there was around the, the sort of what is sophisticated and I I kind of I kind of lump them in two two directions, right? Okay. NSO stuff is very sophisticated software and it's sophisticated in terms of the targets that people generally go after, right? They're going after some some generally you know high value targets. Right. The the stuff from Dark Caracal or Viper Rat or, or any of the other ones we've talked about over the years, it's it's not sophisticated software. But the targets are sophisticated. Like one of the one of the Viper Rat campaigns was obviously, very obviously, from the data we gathered, it was targeting members of the Israeli Defense Force who were stationed in the Gaza Strip. Okay. Um, 
you know, if you think about the military value of being able to track the location of all the phones of a, of a given military unit. Extremely. I mean, incredibly high value, incredibly sophisticated in what you get, but not necessarily sophisticated in the software you wrote. And so, so I think you have to you have to split the sophistication of the target versus the sophistication of the product, which on PCs you don't because the sophistication of the target required the sophistication of the software. Okay. So switching gears a, a little bit, I, I want to talk about a, a different threat that we've been seeing in the mobile space lately is these ad fraud campaigns that we have been seeing. To me, it seems like the everyday user is a lot more susceptible to being drawn into these ad fraud campaigns than they are ever potentially having Pegasus infect their mobile device. I'm wondering from your perspective, how does an everyday consumer prevent their phone from being, or any sort of mobile device from being co-opted into these ad fraud campaigns? Sure. And, and, so, you know, it's, it's funny because I remember, I, I remember, um, might have been 10 ish years ago when there was, uh, a real proliferation of what we then called spyware and adware on computers. And it wasn't, it wasn't when I say surveillanceware, you know, that's really designed to track you around. When we talked about spyware and adware on computers, it was exactly what we're seeing from the ad fraud networks, right? It was, it was click ads and pop up ads and cookie, um, cookie injection and things like that. And there was a proliferation of it for a few years. And then it, you know, we, we built in ad, you know, basically adware detection into every endpoint AV. And that became a much less interesting, you know, form of, of cybercrime. I think we're seeing the, per, the parallel on mobile right now. Um, it's relatively easy because nobody really has security software on their, on their devices to get one of these fake apps that has ad overlay stuff on it and you'll click on a bunch of ads and the attacker will make money. I really think it's a temporary problem um, and I think the answer to it is relatively simple. Go go on the Google Play Store or the Mac App Store and download any number of legitimate security tools for your device and use it. I, mean, I, I, I am biased. I think Lookouts is the one that you should get. Um, by the way, it's free. I'm a big fan of free, but we're not the only ones. You know, there's others out there. I encourage, I encourage the use of security software before no security software. Uh, I'm personally biased to use ours, but, um, you know, cause, cause I know the kind of work that my team puts into it and, and I'm pretty proud of the protection that we give our customers. So, uh, I mean, and, and it's a simple solution. That's the whole solution. Go put some security software on your mobile device and it will solve 98 or 99% of that problem before you ever have it, right? Just like, just like I would never tell you to build a PC and not put basic AV on it, even though we all know that AV has limitations because it eliminates the low-hanging fruit. It eliminates the low-hanging fruit like click fraud and ad fraud and stuff like that. Same thing on phones. So we like to end um, our interviews on a random question, and this is really random. So if the animal kingdom ever rises up and takes over, which animal would make the best type of president? Which animal would make the best type of president? Um, I'm going to pull one out from from my childhood. I'm going to go Wild E. Coyote Super Genius. (laughs) Really? Really? Because I get the sense of just knowing I was a big Roadrunner fan growing up, too. I I get the the feeling that that would end poorly. Well... You know, I mean, 
it would definitely be an adventure. Let's just say it that way. It may, <laughs> may live in interesting times, as the old curse goes. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, definitely. I feel you there. All right, Mike. Uh, thanks for taking some time out to talk to us. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me again, guys. This this has been a blast. Thanks again to Mike for joining us. Wiley Coyote in 2020 would be a wild time. I think it's going to be a wild time with or without him. Yeah, uh, hopefully Wild can uh, adopt Mark Warner's cybersecurity platform and then maybe we'll be okay. <laughs> so that's all for now. Talk to you next week. As always, stay curious.